manganese nodules are naturally formed at the bottom of the ocean. These nodules are very rich in a number of minerals. The value was considered very, very high, making the operation appear to be lucrative from a financial point of view. Appear to be lucrative. The Goldmore Explorer program was basically designed to validate a cover story. People in the United States were so anxious and so terrified of the potential of a nuclear war that we could not afford not to do this, nor could we afford for anything to leak out. Obviously, if it had leaked out, we would not have had a chance. This is Inside Skunk Works. Today, we're celebrating International Podcast Day with a spy story, a Cold War spy story, involving CIA cover stories, the Red Fleet, Lockheed Martin engineers, and a famous eccentric American billionaire. In our last episode, you met one of Sea Shadow's program managers, and he's back this week. My name is Larry Dilger. I spent about 35 years of my career here at Lockheed in the Skunk Works and spent the majority of the years managing small ADP programs. Most of what I did was classified. It's 1968, the United States and the Soviet Union are surveilling each other in fear of nuclear war. The Soviet Navy is strategically divided into four fleets, the Northern, the Pacific, the Black Sea, and the Baltic fleets. The Red Fleet submarines were more difficult to track and therefore utilized to patrol and penetrate remote reaches of the ocean. The United States implemented intelligence gathering systems to better detect enemy vessels, one of which was SONUS, an acronym for Sound Surveillance System. SONUS was developed to track Soviet submarines by monitoring low frequency sound in the layer of water where sound travels slowest. The Navy and the agencies, by using overhead intelligent gathering devices such as satellites, patrol aircraft, etc., observed some very unusual activity going on in the North Pacific. We knew from our sonal systems that the Soviets launched their submarines, they transitioned down to off the coast of the United States, we could track those submarines. They knew the Soviets were looking for something. They were all over the place. 
And it took a long time for them to give up the search. But we didn't know what they were looking at. And they knew that the Soviets had nuclear-armed missiles in a Gulf-class submarine. Later, it came out that the Gulf-class submarine could carry up to three nuclear-armed intercontinental ballistic missiles. On March 8, 1968, the United States Sonus recorded an acoustic event northwest of Oahu, Hawaii. This was thought to be the location of whatever the Soviets were looking for. In August of 1968, the USS Halibut, a special operations submarine, secretly surveyed the location of the recorded event. Turns out the sub, K-129, had sunk for unknown reasons in the North Pacific. The sub had sunk to the level of about 16,000 feet. Part of the magic of the Skunk Works is its ability to put together a team. Kelly Johnson and a man named John Perengalski closely collaborated on an effort designed to recover the sunken Soviet submarine. This effort would be classified and was known to those briefed as Project Azorian. John Paranogsky was the executive officer and program manager for the CIA's A-12 Oxcart. He would now direct the CIA's Project Azorian. The relationship between the Skunk Works and the CIA, of course, had been cemented by the U-2, A-12, and SR-71. program manager that was assigned to the effort supported by ADP was a gentleman named Norm Nelson. He was an engineer's engineer who had come to us originally from the Air Force, managed very interesting projects like the Condon Report and Project Blue Book, worth looking into. Norm was sent to ADP to watch over the Skunk Works during the manufacture and construction of the A-12. Funny story. John Perengalski told Kelly that he wanted one of his guys in ADP. Kelly resisted at first, but he told John, you can send this guy in. I'll give him a desk and a place to put it, but I won't give him a chair. I don't want his duff sitting on a chair. I want him out there where the operation was. It didn't take very long for Norm Nelson to distinguish himself as one of the finest engineers that Kelly had ever met. Kelly had complete trust in him, as did John Perengalski. When the CIA decided that they were going to attempt recovery of the submarine, John came to Kelly. Kelly assigned Norm Nelson.
Kelly handpicked a number of people within the Skunk Works Engineering, including some very notable individuals like Henry Combs, Cracker Jack engineer, Steve Schoenbaum, excellent security man, and a host of quite a few others. Norm Nelson and his team would be responsible for developing the submarine capture device. The CIA entertained a number of ideas for recovering the sunken submarine. Winching something up from the bottom of the ocean, attaching cables to it, something that weighed that much being yanked off the bottom of the ocean? Can you imagine? That's one heck of an anchor. (laughs) So that didn't make a lot of sense. Let's say you wanted to raise the ship by pumping air into it, okay? The pressure, 16,000 feet deep, is so high, you would have to pump air pressure in excess of 5,000 pounds per square inch down through a pipe to depths where a lot of structure is crushed due to the depth. Once you pump the air inside this thing, will it rise? How fast will it rise? Can you control it? Assuming you can make a pipe that'll get that much air and compressors large enough to pump enough air 16,000 feet down to the bottom of the ocean to raise something. So the idea of being able to float it to the top, it just wasn't practical. It just couldn't be done. The one that bubbled up as the most promising was one that involved a string of pipe, similar to what's used in oil wells. At the end of the pipe would be a claw. The claw's name was Clementine. And the design for that claw was a collaborative effort between some very brilliant engineers at Lockheed Missiles and Space, the Advanced Marine Systems folks, and ADP. The Alaska Pipeline, 16,000 feet is approximately three miles. So imagine, if you will, three-mile-long Alaskan pipeline. But rather than laying on the ground, being supported in concrete cradles, welded together, this string of pipe resembled more like a soda straw going down through a bottle. At the end of that soda straw, you had a clamping device, this clementine, a backbone, with ribs pneumatically controlled to cradle the submarine. At the bottom part of the claw, you'd have other mechanisms, legs, that could pry the ship up off the bottom of the ocean, and then the entire mechanism, including the target, would be hoisted back up through the center of the ship, affixed to the end of this pipe string. So the plan was to slowly build a pipeline through the center of a ship. At the center of the ship would be a derrick. 
570 30-foot pipes would be strung through the derrick to the bottom of the ocean floor, section by section going deeper and deeper, in order to bring the 2,000-ton submarine up from more than three miles deep, they would do the reverse, slowly deconstructing the pipeline they built. The claw at the end of the pipe would capture the sunken submarine, bring the submarine up from the depths into the well of a submersible barge known as the Hughes Mining Barge. The Hughes Mining Barge proved to be a very, very credible player in this entire program in that it could be used to harvest the manganese nodules from the bottom of the ocean. The Navy and CIA would conduct Project Azorian in plain sight of the public, so they had to implement a cover story. What made the whole story kind of stick together was a guy named Howard Hughes. In other news today, industrialist Howard Hughes launched his Glomar Explorer from the port of Long Beach, California. According to Hughes, the vessel's mission will be to search and mine for valuable metals deep beneath the ocean's surface. The Explorer was purported to cost in the hundreds Howard of Hughes was known for doing all kinds of crazy things, like the Spruce Goose, largest wooden airplane ever built. Okay. So the story that Howard Hughes, multi-billionaire, is going to get rich by mining the bottom of the ocean floor just sounded plausible. <laughs> Of course, he had all the resources. He had the ship. So he created a shell company called the Suma Corporation. That shell company was home, temporary home, for a lot of people from a lot of different locations, including the Skunk Works. So people were actually badged to the Suma Corporation for the duration of the program. The Hughes Glomar Explorer and the Hughes Mining Barge began operation on June 20th, 1974. The cover story behind the Glomar Explorer was obviously a target of a lot of interest by not only commercial people anxious to get into ocean mining expeditions, but also by the Soviets and other folks around the world. Throughout the program, the Soviets, with a number of trawlers, watched the Glomar Explorer very, very carefully. The Soviets knew that they had lost the submarine, but they didn't know exactly where that submarine had gone down. But being a little suspicious of this cover story, they followed the ship throughout its trials off of Catalina, and then off of the Hawaiian Islands. The U.S. Navy at the time had a number of sensors in the ocean, basically tracking submarine navigation in the Northern Pacific. 
the mining expedition for manganese nodules made a lot of sense because that portion of the Northern Pacific was rich in those fields. On one occasion during the program, a Soviet trawler came up alongside the Glomar Explorer and the crew requested a tour of the ship. That tour was granted. As they traveled around the ship into the dry well, which would eventually house the captured vehicle, there were littered on the floor lots of manganese nodules. Again, supporting this whole story that we were there for mining purposes. The pipe string was designed with ex explosive devices that should it be necessary, the, the pipe could be cut with whatever attached to it would go back to the bottom of the ocean. That was not necessary, but it was something that, that was designed in to protect the true reason for the mission. There were divers around the Glomar Explorer there were other assets used to make sure that prying eyes didn't get too close. Of course, when they got close to us, we watched them as close as they watched us. So, early 70s, the operation took place in plain sight of the Soviets, who actually got on the ship, got a tour of the ship, saw the uh, manganese nodules on the floor, and apparently went home suspicious, but at least satisfied for the moment. It, it, it was crazy. Uh, and again, from a geopolitical point of view, we're trying to figure out how to get along with the Soviet Union. We're trying to negotiate peace treaties. The Soviet Union and the United States had uh, uh, collaborated at the UN level with the uh, rules and regulation for operations at sea. Not envisioning anything like this, but we were working as part of an international community and we weren't necessarily stepping over the line, but we were sure stepping on the line. It could have been become a very major incident. Of course, some of those involved in the program recalled that uh, uh, they had shot down a U-2. They had recovered not only part of the wreckage, but our pilot, Gary Powers. So some of the guys really got excited over the idea of, hey, this is our chance. This is our one-upsmanship. So, uh, you know, everybody was motivated by something uh, uh, different. Some of them just because it had never been done before motivated them. Others uh, because of the national security interest. During that effort, there were a number of engineering challenges, of course. One of the biggest 
was to locate the wreckage at the bottom of the sea. But if a submarine's not moving, if it's sitting dead in the water, it has a no footprint. The satellites, radar, it doesn't disturb the surface of the ocean like a moving submarine does at almost any depth. The ship was outfitted with a number of sonal systems that could map the floor of the ocean and also guide the ship through its various control mechanisms to an area above the target location of a couple of hundred feet, which when at the top of a 16,000 foot soda straw was quite accurate and adequate for raising the sub. The mission didn't occur, you know, over a short period of time. It was days and days and, and weeks. It was over a month-long salvage process. The sea was rough on, on most days. The uh, North Pacific is, is not a calm environment to work in. Waves of 8 to 10 feet, very high sea states. That'll toss any ship around. But to have a ship that had to maintain a very small footprint and being able to pinpoint the sub's location, reach down and recover that sub. How do you, in a very dynamic sea environment, keep a ship precisely located above the treasure? The Glomar Explorer had been outfitted with a propulsion system that included thrusters. Those thrusters helped stabilize the ship. It kept the ship from moving too far off of the location that it needed. The derrick on the ship was gimbaled, so any movement on this otherwise relatively rigid string of pipes could be accommodated, that motion could be accommodated and damped to some uh, degree by those mechanisms attached to the derrick. But literally, each piece of pipe that were laid out on the deck of the Glomar Explorer was hoisted up to the derrick, was mated to its preceding piece, and then lowered, just as any drilling rig uh, would do, down through uh, the bottom of the ship, in this case, the keyhole in the bottom of the ship. The sub, unfortunately, broke. Partway during the recovery process. The objective of the program, of course, was to recover the entire submarine. That was one of the nuclear-armed, golf-class Soviet subs of the era. We desperately wanted to recover one of those nuclear missiles. We also wanted to recover the tower, the conning tower, in addition to all the electronics and communication systems and all that. We might get a glimpse into how the Soviets operated how they communicated, including their cryptography. The portion of the sub that we actually did recover bring into the Hughes Mining Barge, which was submerged below the Glomar Explorer, was basically the front third of the submarine. 
did not include the missile, but did include a lot of the construction technology. Inside that area, there were several sailors that had perished in the catastrophe. Those sailors were respectfully buried at sea, and later their identities, along with any personal effects that were recovered, were in fact given back to the Soviet Union. That, of course, came many, many years later. All of the information that was gleaned from the inspection of the hall portion has not been disclosed for obvious reasons. Inside Skunkworks is produced in Palmdale, California and Fort Worth, Texas. For a full transcript and images of manganese nodules, check out our show notes at LockheedMartin.com slash Inside Skunkworks. We'll be back in two weeks with this season's final episode. <laughs>